This will make our sixth week in this, and we'll finish the chapter today. And I told you last week that John 10 ends Jesus' public ministry in John's gospel. And uh, so as we wrap up today, two things. I didn't give you a note sheet because they're pretty simple. You're going to grasp these things today. One is we're going to see and just be reminded of the truth and the power of God's Word. Uh, When you're faced with a decision, when there's an issue that uh, you're wrangling with, go to God's Word. It is solid. It is secure. It is powerful for all of your needs, for all that you will face. And so we see an affirmation of that, the importance of building our lives on God's Word. And then finally, we'll end this morning with a challenge to think about our lives in such a way, uh, and the challenge will be to let our lives outlive us for the sake of the gospel. What did he just say? He said, let our lives outlive us for the sake of the gospel. Uh, We'll see that here in a few moments. But John, as he ends chapter 10, as he ends Jesus' public ministry, he kind of brings us to a cliffhanger sort of place. He leaves us hanging here at the end of John chapter 10, almost like a choose-your-own-ending book. Any of you remember reading choose-your-own-ending books growing up? I'm all alone here. I see, what, two hands? All right, thank you for the four of you uh, who have a level of nerddom like I do uh, to have read those. These were books that you'd read through the first 20 pages, and you're following the character of the story. You would get to a point and say, now, what would you do? And you'd have options. If you choose to do such and such, turn to page 78. If you would do such and such, turn to page whatever. Well, I was always real brave in books, and so I would choose, you know, the, the most aggressive. You know, you're at a dragon's lair. You hear the roar. You smell the stench coming out of the cave. Like, I'm going in after the dragon, so I'd go in. And flip to the page and say, you died. Okay, in, in, in the book, all right? You know, so it was over that quick. So, but uh, here in John 10, he kind of leaves us with a choice at the end of this chapter. And, and what he's been doing all through his gospel is saying this, believe that Jesus Christ is God's son. He's the Messiah. Believe in him and receive him as your savior. We have talked about this over and over again in this gospel. So John basically leaves the, the choice at the end of this chapter is, what will you do? Will you believe? Believe and receive Jesus as your Savior, or will you reject him? That's the choice. That's the point we come to at the end of John chapter 10. We'll look in verse 30, John chapter 10, verse 30. Just kind of tie into where we ended last week. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and this confrontation they have over the man who had been born blind from birth after he's taught about the good shepherd. In verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. That was a direct claim from the words of Jesus himself to be the same as or equal to God. And you read that and go, well, is that what he's claiming? How how do we know that Jesus was claiming to be equal to or the same as God? Well, for starters, look at the response of the Pharisees, the Jews who were there. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They were going to kill him, all right? They're not throwing pea gravel. They're taking big, huge chunks of rock, throwing that would break bones and tear open skin. Uh, And that's how they killed someone. They would execute people by throwing these large, huge rocks at them in a process the Bible calls stoning. It was execution is what the Bible refers to. So they picked up stones to execute Jesus. They knew what he was saying. They clearly understood that he was claiming to be the same as, equal to God. But Jesus, as they picked up stones, says in verse 32, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? 
You see, they, they got the message of what Jesus was saying. They didn't like it. And, and so Jesus basically says back to them, I've done these signs, these wonders, the, the, these works, these miracles. Now, which one of these, I'm a little confused here, are you going to kill me for? Is it for healing the sick? Is it for feeding the hungry? Is it from raising people from the dead? Is it for curing leprosy? Now, now, which one of these things have I done that's so awful that you would execute me right here on the spot in front of all of these people? And so they respond back to him in verse 33. It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you. Now note that. It's not for a good work. So they're basically kind of saying the good works are fine. Those are okay. We're acknowledging that those are good. Remember that for later. It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. So here we see a second proof that Jesus was claiming to be the same as God, and these guys got it. They understood that. And so they said, it's not because of your good works that we are about to execute you. It's because you are claiming to be the same as God. Now let me ask you a question. If you say something and people misunderstand it or misinterpret it to a point that they are about to kill you, What are the first words out of your mouth? Hold on. Wait a second. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. You guys have totally misunderstood. We're not talking the same language here. That's not the point of what I was saying. We're going to tell people, hold on, because they are about to kill us because they misunderstood what we said. You know, if I'm in the hospital and I tell somebody as a pastor, hey, I'm going to pray for you and and I'm going to believe that God will heal you. And they say, wow, you can make God do what you want him to do. I'm going to say, whoa, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. Let's talk about prayer and believing in prayer and God's power to heal. But Jesus didn't do that. If he hadn't meant to claim and to say that he was the same as or equal to God and he's about to be killed, stoned by these religious leaders, I think Jesus would have spoken up and said, wait a second, guys, that's not what I meant. I didn't mean to say I was God. But Jesus doesn't do that. Why did he not do that? Because he was claiming he was God. He was God and he was speaking the truth to them. And so the Pharisees say, well, it's not about the works. It's about this claim to be God. Uh, And and it was a a valid thing for them to be able to do because the punishment for blasphemy in the law was uh, to kill someone. But Jesus' claim is what's going to be the heart issue or or the issue that we're going to deal with today. But the hard part for these guys is the fact that Jesus constantly wins the the arguments and the debates with them about his identity. You know, he's claiming to be God. They say, well, you're claiming to be God. Uh, You know, the thing's going to be, how can you back this up? You know, you can't prove something. Have you ever been in a situation where someone told you something and you believed that only to find out later that it was absolutely false, totally untrue? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where that's like been proved in front of you. It's really awkward and embarrassing when, when that happens. I used to, I, I worked with a worship pastor one time, and you guys know how sometimes I'll bring props up here and I do different stuff on the platform and the stage and all that. And I, I, I kept asking about doing some things, and he would always tell me that the stage monitors, you know, like these speakers that are right here, that, that I couldn't do it because those we couldn't get rid of them. They needed them for the music stuff. And then I said, well, can we just move them, you know, down to the floor or whatever? He says, no, we can't. There's not enough cable, you know, up in there 
to do it. So I was like, oh man. So I kind of worked around it. Well, one day we were in the worship center and I had another one of these ideas. It's like, no, it's just not going to work. We can't move those things. And so I was like, I just needed a few inches. I mean, just a, just a little bit of space. Well, it worked. So I walked over and I grabbed the cords and I pulled them and they pulled free. And so I pulled and I pulled and I pulled, and there were several feet of, of cable within there. We moved this thing several feet in any direction. And he was really excited that I had done that right there in front of him when he had told me that we couldn't move these speakers. And I, being the kind of person I am, I've never let him live it down, you know, to this day that, that that's the case. And I learned, you know, double-check the, these facts and information. He wasn't trying to be malicious or throw a wet blanket on my ideas. It was just the information that he was working off of, and it proved to not be true. And so you feel for these Pharisees at a point because they're constantly telling people, don't believe this man. This man is not from God. He's a sinner. You know, he's not true in what he's saying. And they're saying all these things to people that he's a false teacher. You know, he's an emissary from Satan. They're saying this about Jesus. And as they're saying these things about how bad and how awful and how terrible this Jesus guy is, up walks a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. Up walks a man who had been blind uh, from birth. Up walk, you know, lepers who had been cured of their leprosy. A guy walks up whose servant had been healed by Jesus. A little girl who had been raised from the dead walks up. The whole body of evidence was counter to what they were saying. Yet they were so entrenched and their hearts were so cold and so callous uh, and so hard that they wouldn't believe and receive Jesus as their Savior. And so Jesus has put these guys in a really hard spot. Because he's saying, now which one of these works are you going to stone me for? And the people are looking going, yeah. Yeah, which one are you? They're in this spot of of public opposition to the good works that Jesus had performed. And they said, no, it's this issue of blasphemy. And so Jesus looks to them and he answers this accusation, this charge about blasphemy. And to rightly understand this, we're going to have to do a little, uh, little digging here. So I want, to, I want to read this statement, and then we're going to flip to another part of Scripture. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? Now, that is an easy, very direct question that requires a yes or no answer. See, the Pharisees were teachers, interpreters, enforcers of the law. And their right to be able to execute Jesus for blasphemy was based on what? The law. It was based on the law, what the law taught. And so here we're looking at that, saying, okay, they're backing up the law. They follow the law, the teachings and the principles that are in there. So Jesus, what he does here is he kind of enters into a debate mode with them. It was very common in ancient times for teachers. uh, If there was an issue to be decided, they would have a debate, sometimes one-on-one or sometimes group, you know, with group. They would get together. They would talk. They would give their best arguments uh, from logic, from reason to refute. They would use the law. They would interpret it. They would try to arrive at at a conclusion and the winner of the debate, that's who you followed or that's how you practice whatever the teaching or the principle was. So they're citing the law in order to be able to execute Jesus. So Jesus says, oh, we're going to use the law. Good enough. Does your law say, I said you are God's? Yes 
or no? Turn back to Psalm chapter 82. Psalm chapter 82. And we'll go back to John 10 in a moment, but just, just flip back over there to Psalm 82. And in case you have never done it or noticed it, in your Bible back in John 10, somewhere around John 10, 34, there's probably a little letter or a number. Mine has the letter A in it. It's a little superscript number that's on there uh, to a footnote. That's a cross-reference. And if you look at that cross-reference in John 10, 34, it's going to take you back to Psalm chapter 82. So that's why those are there. Those aren't uh, just little things to distract you as you read through. That's to help you understand Scripture as you interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. When you look at John 10 and you see Jesus' questions and what he goes through, it can be a little bit uh, difficult or a little bit uh, confusing at first glance. But when you get the context and see what's taking place in Psalm 82, you realize that what Jesus does in his response to the Pharisees is absolutely genius. I mean, it is absolutely genius how he handles these accusations, how he walks them through this, and it's completely irrefutable, absolutely irrefutable, which reminds us of the truth and the power of God's Word. In Psalm 82, David uh, paints a picture here. He says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, we may initially scratch our heads a little bit at that and be somewhat puzzled and say, did it just say that God came to a divine council of little g gods? Because the Bible says that there are no gods outside of God, so how can God take and go be a part of a divine council of other gods if they don't exist? Well, this is a word picture. He's drawing a metaphor here for us to be able to, to speak or to understand something that God is doing as he addresses an issue. And say, well, what kind of, of group then, uh, what kind of a word picture is it? Verse 2, he says, how long, this is God, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So God is speaking to a group of judges people who are making decisions, and they're doing it unjustly. They're not good judges. They're bad judges. They're unjustly. And it says, how long will you show partiality to the wicked? So they're not being fair in their judgments. They're being partial to those who probably had money, status, influence, who could do some kind of a favor for the judge. And so their, uh, their discernment has been twisted uh, because they are, they're judging unjustly. And so God comes to them and says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And he gives them instruction as to what they are supposed to do in verse 3. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Verse 5 is a, a description of these judges. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So this is a pretty straightforward, pretty simple to understand passage of Scripture. God says to a group of judges that they are to be fair and honest in the judges, particularly if the case is, is involving the weak, powerless, uh, uneducated, helpless people, those who are defenseless in their society, God's saying, don't just sweep them aside. Don't overlook them. Don't take advantage of them because they don't have money, because they're, they're, not, they're not wealthy, they're not powerful, they're not influential. No, you be fair in what you're doing. 
And if you rule in favor of them and against the, the weak and the powerful and those who, who are, have whatever to leverage over them, then you rule rightly. You rule justly. Do what is right. Does God ever tell that to his people, to do what is right regardless? Yeah, yeah, he does. And then God adds and he describes that they weren't following his moral laws. And he says they had a lack of knowledge and understanding. And as a result, they walked about in darkness. So you walk about in darkness. And he said that uh, at the end of verse 5, the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now, I won't go down the tangent that, that could be here. But to say this, that without a moral fabric or a moral foundation, a society is shaken. When you take away its moral foundations and its moral underpinnings, that society, that culture is in trouble. That's a whole separate sermon. I just have one illustration from the the life and the world we live in today. I was absolutely blown away this week, church, to read an article. And some of you may have seen this on my Facebook page. There was a blog where a medical ethicist in Europe, a medical ethicist, educated, trained, all the degrees, I'm assuming practicing somewhere, don't know about the persons that wrote it, but a medical ethicist in a medical journal reviewed by peers to to allow articles to go in or not, argues the case that adults, parents, people, should be able to terminate the life of a child even after birth. And this individual didn't even set an age as to say, well, some people will argue for that. They call it infanticide, that that people should be able to to take the life of an infant. We've got abortions. We understand that, how the life. And so we argue about this whole, where's the point of life? This guy's argument is this, well, if it's not a life in the fetus, in the womb, when it's born, there's still a window of time here where that child, they can't reason, they can't think, they can't anticipate the future, they have no knowledge of their surrounding and and their understanding. And this person, and I'll use that term, goes on to say that if an individual who brought this child into life said they just don't feel like they're able to care for the child, they don't have the money, or their situation has changed, and they just feel like they're not ready to be a parent, they should have the right to be able to end the life of this child. And he didn't say up to the age of three. He left it wide open. Teenagers be afraid. Be very afraid. I'm just saying. It blew my mind. I can I, I was sick to my stomach to think that we would allow ourselves to go down the path of logic and reason that some knucklehead would argue that this should be an okay thing for a society to tolerate. Unbelievable. Yet there it was. God says all the foundations of the earth are shaken. And without a moral fabric and a moral foundation, a society is shaken. So God here in Psalm 82 is referring to a group of of little g gods as he calls them. So we say judges, so we're thinking human judges, but some say, well, maybe speaking to a group of angels. Well, look at verse 6 to, to clearly identify who God is speaking to. I said, you are gods. Oh, wait a minute. Back in John 10, did Jesus ask, does the law say 
I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, reference to people, to humans, all of you. Nevertheless, God says, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. So here, God is speaking to men, mere human beings, who in their role as judges perform a characteristic, a trait, a quality of God himself. They judge, they make decisions over right and wrong. And their power, their authority had gone to their heads. People revered and respected them. Just as we look to, we revere, uh, we, we should respect and honor judges and the decisions, the role they have to play. So people held them in high esteem in their society. And they had taken that esteem. They had taken that respect. It had gone to their heads. And they began to think of themselves as, as, as high and mighty and above reproach and above judgment of the, on their own part. And God comes to them and says, no, you're not above judgment. You will sit under my judgment, so I, as your creator, tell you to do what is right. But how does God refer to this group of judges? He calls them little g gods. He comes to the council, and in verse 6, he says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Go back to John chapter 10 now. Our field trip is over. John chapter 10. Verse 34, Jesus' words. Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? The answer is, yes, it is written in the law. Yes, it is written in the law. And Jesus goes on based on that and says, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, talking about people, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Man, I love it. I love this affirmation from Jesus where he underscores the truthfulness of God's word and he solidifies his argument because basically saying, Okay, God called some men, some evil, wicked, sinful men, bad judges. These aren't the good judges. These are the bad judges. God called them little g gods. That's how he referenced them in your law. If he calls them gods, then, and he goes on and arrives at a conclusion, verse 36, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? The translation of that is basically this. If God calls wicked, evil men little g gods, then why is it a sin for me, fellas, the consecrated, the holy, the righteous, the pure the true Messiah come from God to say that I am God when truly I am God. You see the logic of this? This is, a, this is an argument from lesser to greater. If God can call this group of persons, these wicked evil men, little g gods, and yet you see what I have done, you see the proofs and the evidence that, that, are, that are here to support this claim that I have, why would you consider that blasphemy? And before anybody could say, well, prove that you're God, because that's what somebody's going to say, are they not? 
Well, well, they weren't gods. When we see that from Scripture, we understand that they weren't gods. That was a title. So you claiming to be God, you know, that, that can just be you referencing that. You can think that you are, but you're not because our doctrine, our theology, our view, what our law says is that God isn't a man, that, that God doesn't exist in that form, which is true. But here's the thing. If someone comes to, uh, to you and they claim and they say something on behalf of God with God's authority, then, then our question is going to be, well, where do you support that from? Where does it say that in Scripture. Uh, And so they could look back and see in the law, and Jesus had shown them over and over again in the law how he fulfilled the law, but we would ask for proof. We would ask for evidence. Okay, you're saying this. It doesn't mesh. How do we know that you're God? God wasn't a man. God is spirit, the Bible says, but God was man in the form of Jesus Christ. So it would be totally fair for them to say, well, prove it. Prove that you are God. So before somebody could ask the question, How are you going to prove it? Look at what Jesus says in verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Perfect. Jesus says, show me the sin that I have committed. Show me evil. Show me disobedience. Show me wickedness from my heart, from my actions. What work have I done that is sinful, that is disobedient, that breaks God's law. If, if, if you don't believe it, then show me the works. If my works aren't from my Father, then, then what is it? There are none. Jesus was perfect. He was without sin, without blemish, without stain. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Then he comes back. He gives one last plea. I will never cease to be amazed at the patience and the tolerance of our Lord Jesus Christ. These guys have opposed him at every turn with horrible accusations and and, and false truths and lies and deception and deceit and so many things. And yet here Jesus is once again making a plea, saying, would you believe? Believe these things. Receive me as your Savior. You know, the sermon title for this morning is What More? And as I looked at and just thought about the, the, the movement we've seen in John's gospel, and we come to this point and we see this final argument where Jesus, you know, identifies himself as God and he totally refutes, you know, their, their arguments and their accusation of blasphemy. You're just at a point where you're saying, what more could Jesus do? The signs, the wonders, the teachings, the patience, the mercy, all that's going, what more could he do to prove, to demonstrate, to show them that he was who he said he was, that they would believe and receive him as Savior. And he says in verse 38, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. One last invitation, one last plea, one last call. Believe. Believe and receive the salvation that I offer, that I am bringing to you. So do they finally get it? 
Do they fall on their knees and worship and say, we believe it all makes sense. We get it. Save us. We, we want to be one of your children. Verse 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. It's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking to think of all they've seen, all they've heard, to be walked through this last display of logic here where Jesus you know, clearly identifies that he is God and to see them turn and walk away. And actually they didn't turn and walk away. They sought to arrest him. He's the one that turns and walks away. And I think if they had arrested him, what would they have charged him with? What would have been the charge? That there was no truth in anything they had said. So when you don't have truth on your side, what's left? Untruth or lies. And ultimately and finally, Jesus was arrested and tried based on what? On lies, on untruths. They realized truth isn't going to cut it. We're going to have to try a different strategies, a different strategy. But John doesn't end chapter 10 with this picture of the Pharisees' cold, hard hearts refusing to receive him as Savior. Look in verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, meaning John didn't perform miracles and wonders. John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And then look at the simplicity of this statement in verse 42. And many believed in him there. Many believed in him there. Do you see the complete opposite reaction here at the end of John? The Pharisees had seen these miracles and the evidence of Jesus' works. They had heard him teach, and Jesus walked them through. And I told you part of the challenge for this morning is to see the the truth and the power of God's Word. And Jesus had used God's Word to underscore who he was, what he came to do to try and teach them. He said, you guys are followers of the law. Awesome. Let's talk about where I'm at in the law and how I fulfilled this and why you should believe me based on the law. See that? It's awesome. You can't argue with it. And they go, yeah, we're still not believing. Well, then what about the works? You see the works here? Believe in me because of the works. Like, yeah, we're still not believing. What more are you going to do? So we see that picture in John 10. And then Jesus goes to this area called Perea, which is where John the Baptist had been baptizing. And he goes and he begins to teach and share who he is and what he came to do. And the people there said, you know what? John the Baptist spoke of this guy. John didn't do anything. They didn't see the signs and wonders and all these sort of things. They probably heard about them. I mean, word about Jesus had spread throughout the land. They knew and they'd heard of these things. Maybe some of them had been in places where they witnessed these and they came back and spoke. But when Jesus came and called them to himself, what does John say happened? Many believed in him there. I mean, do you see this contrast, these two pictures of of refusal to believe and receive Christ, and yet others who who believed in him and received him and became uh, sons and daughters of God? It's an awesome picture. But here's what I want us to note and remember as, as we wrap up this morning. It's something about John the Baptist. John didn't perform any signs, they said, but John's witness and his testimony about Jesus was bearing fruit long after John was dead. John's witness and his testimony about Jesus was bearing fruit long after he was dead. 
I mean, it's still bearing fruit today as we look to the, to the witness and the, the example of John the Baptist, who John's role, what did John do? He pointed people toward Jesus. That's what John did. He said, I'm the, way, I'm the one who's come to prepare a way in the wilderness for the one who is to come. John's goal, his life mission was to point people to Jesus. My question for us is, are we willing and are we fulfilling our life mission, our life goal, our life purpose of pointing people to Jesus, regardless of what it may cost us? What did it cost John the Baptist to be a witness, a testimony, of one who prepared the way and pointed people to Jesus? It cost him his life. He was executed, beheaded because of people's hatred for him and his teachings and his standing on truth and pointing people to Jesus. But I love, if you remember when John the Baptist's disciples came to him and they said, hey, more people are going to follow Jesus than are following you. What do you want us to do about that? Do you want us to go get a few more back from you? Tell, you know, we'll, we'll start spreading stuff about that Jesus guy and get them over here. Can you do a sign or wonder that probably help our case a little bit? You know, how do you want us to handle the, the fact that your followers are now going to follow Jesus? What are we going to do about this? Remember what John said in John chapter 3, verse 30, when they asked him this question? Very simply, John said, he must increase, I must decrease. It's my favorite verse. It's my life verse. It's on the front of my Bible right here. It says, Curtis, John 3, 30. Because I love the heart and the spirit and the understanding of John, knowing his role, his place, and his position and saying, you know what? It's not about John the Baptist. It's all about Jesus. I want him to increase and for me to decrease. Are you doing your part in fulfilling God's plan for your life, even if you're not recognized, even if you're not honored or remembered for your efforts? Now, John was and is remembered, but not everyone who plays a significant role in working for God's kingdom will be remembered. How many of you here this morning recognize at least the name of Martin Luther? You, you recognize that Martin Luther uh, is what we call the father of the Reformation. He wrote his 95 theses and went and nailed them on the door of the church at Wittenberg and, and began the, the Protestant Reformation to, to leave uh, the Catholic Church and, and to study God's Word and to make it available for people. And so he uh, made incredible contributions to Christianity by translating the Bible and preaching and teaching, writing doctrinal and theological statements as, Protestant, as Protestantism who we are, took root. I mean, he has an entire theological denominational system named after him in Lutheranism. Uh, and he, he just a, a great pillar of our heritage and the faith and of who we are today. So, so many of you recognize the name Martin Luther. How many of you know the name of the theologian who mentored and discipled and dialogued with Luther as he worked out his doctrine and his theological positions to the extent that one author said of this man, they said he is as much a founder of Lutheranism as Luther is. How many of you know his name? Am I, anybody? His name was Philip Melanchthon. And you go, wow, I recognize Luther. Never heard of that guy. He did his role. He did the task that God set before him. God blessed and God honored that. Although what we remember and we see is through the life of Martin Luther. 
How many of you have heard of Dwight Lyman or D.L. Moody? Some D.L. Moody recognition here? Okay. Uh, He was a great evangelist of the 19th century, started the revival, the crusade movement that swept through America during the late 1800s, much of the 1900s as well. Anybody know the name of the Sunday school teacher who went to the shoe store where D.L. Moody was working in his uncle's shoe store and witnessed and shared with him how much God loved him that he would send his son to die in his place so that D.L. Moody gave his heart and his life to Jesus Christ. Anybody know the name of that Sunday school teacher? His his name was Edward Kimball. Faithful Sunday school teacher went and led D.L. Moody to Christ. What about George McCluskey? Anybody recognize the name George McCluskey? All right, George McCluskey was a believer. He was a man of faith, and God burdened his heart to pray for his children one hour every day. And so he did because he wanted his children to follow Christ. And as his family expanded, he began to pray not just for his children, but for his grandchildren for one hour every day. I think it was between 11 and noon every day uh, he would clear his schedule and pray for his children, for his grandchildren. His daughters gave their lives to Christ and married men who all went into the ministry. And together, those daughters had four girls and one boy. All four girls married pastors, and the boy became a pastor. Well, when they started having kids, the first two children born were both boys, and they grew up together and wound up going to college together and were college roommates. And one of those two boys, we're talking about, this is great-grandchildren now, I guess, of George McCluskey. One felt the call into ministry because it was the legacy of his family tree dating back to George McCluskey and his prayers. The other young man said, you know what, I I just don't, I don't really feel led that way. I don't feel like that's what God's wanting me to do. And he said he felt pressure and this this huge uh, uh, weight upon him from the eyes of the family looking at him going... Aren't you going into the ministry? Everybody else goes into the ministry. You're not going into the ministry. But he really didn't feel like that was God's call for his life. So he pursued his love of psychology. And he went on to get his doctorate. And he began to write books for parents. And he wrote those books. And people read those books. And they became bestsellers. And because of the interest in that and the questions that came, he began a radio program to begin speaking about these books and these topics and these things. And you may have heard of James Dobson this psychologist great-grandchild of George McCluskey and his ministry of focus on the family. You recognize that? Yeah. And I love how Jim Elliott, missionary to the Alka Indians in Ecuador, who gave his life on the mission field, I love what he said about missionaries. He said something to the effect that missionaries are a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. And I thought, well, that's a great definition of how many, many people will serve Christ in anonymity or relative relative obscurity. But don't mistake anonymous for unnecessary because we are all essential to the body of Christ and to the work that God has called us to do. John the Baptist was faithful in his role And he was pointing people to Christ even after his death. And I challenged you early to outlive your life for the sake of the gospel. So I wanted you to evaluate your life this morning and say, God, am I being faithful? 
Am I living my life in a way that I will leave that legacy, that I will point people to Christ, continue pointing people to Christ, even after I'm gone? John 10 ends with a contrast and with a question. Will you believe and receive me as Savior, or will you reject me? If you're here today and you have not entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that is the question for you today. That's the choice facing you as well. But if you are a believer, then I ask you today, are you following Jesus as your good shepherd? Are you doing your part, fulfilling your role in pointing people to Christ so that God can use that and people that you may not know, people you may never see, would come to Christ and continue fulfilling their mission and their purpose that God has called them to. There may be recognition for them and none for you, but you know what? It doesn't matter because God's called us to be faithful or to, as how one person phrased it, bloom where you're planted to bear fruit for God and His kingdom. Let's pray.